welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence only, of course. I'm Seth Rogen, and I'm here with my powerless, handsome, and wealthy co-host, Thomas Horrocks. How you doing, Thomas? <laughs> wow, uh, you, you've really decided to own that one, huh? Well, when you look as good as this, and you get mistaken for famous people, you might as well just run with it. You know, if you <laughs> own it, it loses its power. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, well, so we've fallen a little bit behind schedule. Uh, I know we wanted to get more done between you and I this year, but uh, pastor life and parent life and all that is nonstop. So um, let's catch up for a minute. What, what's new with you? Oh, just the normal pastor stuff. Uh, Allison and I are going to Texas from August 1st to August 8th to attend the Christians for Biblical Equality Conference. So we're looking forward to that. Nice. We can do a little touring through Texas, which is God's country, I'm told. <laughs> uh, and other than that, just... Preaching, writing, uh, local church stuff, uh, preached a sermon on Philemon a little while back, preaching on Romans 16 and Phoebe and Junia uh, in August. Nice. And yeah, I mean, the book's coming along well. Uh, I just got a nice email from my copy editor today, which means I probably should respond to it because it's been so busy, but <laughs> it's been it's been quite busy. A lot of stuff going on, but all of it, any pastor uh, listening knows exactly what that means so <laughs> certainly certainly and what you guys you? moved you? recently as well right yes we moved from uh, pasadena which is in which is about 10 minutes north of downtown los angeles about an hour east to redlands which is a city that is kind of like a mini pasadena and then once you go through redlands on the freeway you end up in the desert so okay, okay. it's one of those really nice little cities that's on the very edge of civilization and then you hit smaller cities or towns and then desert then nice. It's, then it's a four hour drive to Phoenix. So. Okay. Okay. Well, moving is no joke. That's always, always stressful even when you're well prepared. So Amen to that. I can understand. Well, yeah, not too, uh, not too much. Well, I guess that's not true. A lot going on here, um, you know, between church stuff and family stuff and national guard stuff. So yeah, it's certainly been, um, very busy. I've been on the road a little bit doing weddings and different trainings for different things and all that. So I've been away from the, the house a little bit more than I would have liked this week. Mm-hmm. I get to be in a little bit more. So yeah, some, some time on the road and uh, lots of work. Well, you, got to meet, you got to meet a few people from Twitter, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Uh, we actually, I had my denominational conference um, a couple of weeks ago down in Florida. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I got to meet up with a bunch of people that I had not met in person um, there. And then a couple other people in Ohio when I went there for a training for the National Guard, I got to uh, meet up with a couple people I hadn't met before. So, yeah, I love I love those tweet up things, making uh, people who say that real friendships don't blossom over social media, don't know what they're talking about. As a matter of fact, you and I are friends and we've actually never met in person. We've never met in person. I have not had the pleasure and you have not had the best pleasure. <laughs> I, that is not true. We, we will have that mutual pleasure uh, at some point in the future, I pray. I am being so good at not making jokes right now. I, I feel like I've achieved a new level of sanctification just by not saying jokes that people are screaming right now. You were going to make a joke about mutual pleasure, weren't you? No. Do you think that less of me that I would <laughs> say something like, uh, like just, no, I'm a pastor, good sir. We, we do this make is jokes. a Christian podcast, sir. Well, not according to some people on <laughs> iTunes who leave us reviews and stuff. But yeah. <laughs> Maybe that maybe that sinner part of our name is starting to come through a little bit. A little too much, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, um, now that we are all caught up, uh, are you enjoying a beverage this evening? 
I am. I am staying away from hops for a while, mostly because I forgot to pick one up. Okay. So I'm drinking uh, something that's a little lower on my totem pole, but it's Johnny Walker Double Black. Ooh. So it's silky, smooth, not a huge taste profile, but big on cedar, a little bit of tobacco. Uh, it's tasty, but it's not my go-to, but because I didn't feel like digging into the, the more expensive stuff, I decided just to settle for some Double Black. So it's it's tasty. Um, I'd recommend it to you if you like something that you can sip a little more kind of regularly. Yeah, yeah. Where does Double Black fall, like, on the color spectrum? I'm not familiar with Johnny Walker very much. Uh, it falls on the kind of amber, light caramel. Uh, on the on the price range, it's a little more pricey, if I recall. Johnny Walker Black, the regular, is a little more spice, a little more harsh. This has okay. a little more circular to it instead of, you know, chugging down a square. It's, like, it's a lot more smooth, which I like. Okay, so does it go, like, red, black, blue, or what's the order there? Oh, I actually don't know the order. So oh, okay. I think, I think black, red, no, it's, I think it's red, blue, black. Oh, okay, so you got, like, the high-end Johnny Walker. I got the, uh, it's, like, low middle class. Okay, okay. So, I mean, I have other stuff that is, like, you know, the 1% and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't feel like breaking that out because it's been a long day, and you save that stuff for special occasions. Like, when I come to visit. Exactly. Okay, good. We'll, we'll get that done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, come out and drink at my house. There you go. All right, so what are you drinking? Because I can, I heard you crackling a can or something. Yeah. Um, so I got a can of Dogfish Head Sea Quench Ale Session Sour. That's is a that, mouthful. Uh, is that like a teal green can? Because yes. Okay, yes. I've seen that one. That's out yeah. here. Okay, cool. Um, it's actually it's really good. So it's like the quintessential beach beer. It's like uh, it's brewed with uh, all kinds of lime and sea salt in a sour. Okay. Uh, so it's like I'm I'm imagining myself just on the beach with the with the water lapping at my feet and all that. It's uh, it's bringing me it's perfect perfect summer beach beer. Even though I'm in my garage in the summer in Indiana, a good in, in, in Indiana right. beach. Nowhere near the beach, but this this beer's getting close. It's it's really good. I, I've come to really appreciate um, uh, sours over the, the past year or two. So I, I really enjoy it. Okay, so when it comes to sours, I'm I'm very picky because if I don't like the lighter color, okay. So for me, a sour has to kind of have a, a like a blackberry kind of vibe to it, or, okay. or something like that. Because the other stuff just tastes like it tastes like soda or cider to me, and I'm not opposed to soda or cider, but it's like. But when I you want, want beer, you want beer. If I want beer, I need to have that kind of dark fruit. You know okay. what I mean? So okay. that that's why the one I used to love is the. It's a blackberry sour, I think by Ballast Point, called the Sour Wench or something like that. It's like pirate-themed, and it's okay. quite tasty. Yeah, so, so you, you probably wouldn't like this one. It's a little bit on the lighter side. It's, uh, you know, if you think of, like, Corona with a lime, but better. See, I actually like Corona and lime. Oh, like, okay. When it's hot and stuff, I, like, I mean, yeah. I consider it, like, a Michael Bay. Like, I know what I'm getting when I drink it. <laughs> and, you know, you and I, I understand that pop culture reference. Yes, you understand, yeah. All my film nerds are very angry, but I like Michael Bay. So they're, they're all angry right now. We just lost 2% of our audience right there. <laughs> nice. Nice, nice, nice. So you know what we need? Uh, more hours in a day to get everything done? No, we need more patrons. But actually, no, that's well. not true. We, we, <laughs> we need some really bad pasture jokes. And just before I forget, thanks to Dan Kent for chipping in on Patreon. That was yes. really nice of him. So yes. hat tip to him. Thank you, Dan. Uh, and hope his book is going well. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but hat tip that uh, it keeps him humble and us humble too. <laughs> well, I did have a chance to read it. If you haven't listened to our podcast with him, go back and listen to that one and then buy his book because it's really, really good. All right. 
but yes, um, I do hear that uh, really bad pastor jokes is the number one reason people listen to our podcast and we should give the people what they want. So I will go first. Um, I'm going to tell a joke that I think later on in the uh, episode, it will become um, evidence why I told this joke. It's actually one that I, I asked people on Twitter to tell me jokes last week. I got a lot of really good ones. Oh, so I'm so you're, share. you're crowdsourcing your jokes. Okay. I did. I did. I crowdsourced. That's actually the uh, most pastoral thing ever because you know, first, <laughs> first it's jokes, then it's sermons, and sooner or later, you know, you and Owen Strand aren't friends anymore. So. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Going way back. Uh, <laughs> all right. So um, this is less of a pastor's joke and, and more of a dad joke, which I think, as you'll see, will be fitting with this episode. Right. Um, so when does a pun become a dad joke? Oh, I already hate this. When? When it becomes apparent. That silence is not intentional. I legitimately <laughs> didn't know what to say to that. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's fine. Like, don't get me wrong, it's clever, but I'm like, that's not a joke you laugh at. That's the joke that makes you take a sip and go, hmm, clever old chap. <laughs> and break when up the accents. Mm-hmm. Apparent. All right, so I got one for you. I think okay. it's, it's not really a pastor joke, but I think it's kind of funny too. So uh, for weeks now, uh, like a, a six year old kid is telling his first grade teacher about the baby brother or sister that's expected at his house. You know, his, his mom is pregnant. And one day the mother allowed him to feel the movements of the baby child on her stomach. You know, you can feel the kid kicking and stuff like that. And the, 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 the child was so obviously impressed, but he didn't make a comment. He just kind of, okay, and that was it. Furthermore, he stopped telling his teacher about the, the birth, the coming birth of the kid. And the teacher finally sat the young boy down eventually and said, you know, uh, uh, Tommy, what, whatever has become of that baby brother or sisters you were expecting at home? Like you, you haven't talked about it for a while. And the and Tommy burst into tears and confessed, I think mother ate it. Oh, no. So not at all a pastor joke, but because I'm a pastor, y'all need to pray for me. Oh. Because that one made me laugh way too much. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, now that we've got those groaners out of the way, um, let's dive into the content. It's been so long since uh, it's just been you and I. We've had a couple of really great interviews between our, uh, after our last episode, we um, interviewed Austin about the biblical manhood stuff and we interviewed Becky about her great book. Um, but it's been, been a while since we have actually talked about the, the project that we began earlier this year that we're calling the, the Christian Theology. Um, where we're sort of building a we're laying the framework for a truly Christ-centered theology. So it's not a systematic theology. It's not strictly a biblical theology, but it is um, a Christian theology centered on Jesus. And so we started asking this question, you know, we began this, this season, so to speak, if you will, this project, asking about, you know, how can we know anything about God? And we talked about the ideas of revelation, the different kinds of revelation. And, and we asked the question, well, where do we start? If we want to know anything about God, where do we start? And one of the things we landed on that, at least in this project, we we're trying to make the case that if you want to know about God, you start with Jesus because Jesus is the clearest and most uh, complete of God's self-revelations. Um, and then from that, we started looking at Jesus's ministry, uh, his his life and his ministry and what he did. And, and we, we came away with this uh, beginning understanding that um, Jesus reveals God to be a God deeply concerned with liberation and restoration and healing. This is, these are the things that characterize Jesus's ministry. 
Um, uh, so that's that's sort of where we have been up until this point. Yeah, and, and continuing on in that vein, in this episode, uh, we're going to take a closer look specifically at some of Jesus' teachings to see what they reveal about the nature and character of God. So what did Jesus actually teach or say about who God is? And uh, I'm, I'm sure you're going to ask where we should start with that. And of course, the answer is we start in Genesis 6 with the flood. Um, because that's no, no, no. I'm going to go ahead and preempt you and say that we should start with probably the Sermon on the Mount or often what it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Ah, okay. All right. Go big or go home. I like it. Um, but just a second. Aren't those like two completely different sermons, Sermon on the Mount and Sermon on the Plain? Well, they are very, very similar. Uh, scholars think they represent a summary of the kinds of things that Jesus taught on a regular basis. So kind of a, a if you're going to make a movie about an entire person's life, you kind of gather everything together that you think forms the story really, really well. And you and you put it all together to make it it's to give it the most impact and stuff like that. These are we think these are things that Jesus regularly taught, uh, and so uh, scholars think that the gospel writers basically took all those things and put them in a certain sequence and basically said, "Here's every if Jesus were to preach a sermon based on everything he taught, and because we can't record all of the sermons, boom here here it is the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain." And that's why in Matthew, it's like three chapters, five, six, and seven. So it's, it's pretty big. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, so Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five, six, and seven. And then Luke is the Sermon on the Plain in, in Luke chapter six. Mm-hmm. But yeah, very, very similar material, which, which makes sense, right? Jesus traveled around and preached in a lot of different places. Um, it, it makes sense that he would reuse some of the same material for different audiences. I know uh, at least I have reused some material in different churches in different settings uh, because they hadn't heard it before. So um, it makes sense that Jesus probably did this. Not saying that, you know, Jesus is like me, but just the concept makes sense. <laughs> yeah. uh, so anyway, are, what are we going to do? Are we going to be exegeting these sermons in their entirety or how are we going to go about this project? Uh, well, if people want to be around for five or six hours and bring up <laughs> their Greek New Testaments, we could do that. But I, I don't think I, I think taking a big picture is kind of a helpful way of doing it. So not in their entirety. So we'll hit some of the big highlights, especially as they relate to uh, what Jesus tells us about what God is like. So continuing our essential theme of a truly Christ-centered theology. And so uh, Jesus gives us a big picture, and I think um, we should follow his example. Okay. All right. That sounds really good. Um, So when it comes to these sermons, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon Uh, on the Plain. Don't don't say it. Don't say what? Where should we start? Hey, that's an excellent question. I hate you. All right, let's start with the, the Beatitudes. <laughs> ah, the Beatitudes, the good old be happy attitudes. Okay, I just discovered I ran out of whiskey. <laughs> what? What's the uh, matter with that? Uh, the, the Beatitudes are not be happy attitudes, or be happy tunes. Oh, all right. Well, all right, we may be getting ahead of ourselves. Um, why don't you explain what the Beatitudes are for anyone listening who may not know what we're talking about when we say beatitude and why do that i'm gonna take a sip of my beach beer oh enjoy your uh, your sour uh the beatitudes is the the term used to describe jesus is quote blessed are the blank statements so blessed are the meek the poor and so on and so forth those statements at the beginning of the sermon on the mountain matthew and the sermon on the plain in luke and the word beatitude just comes from the latin root to bless and so 
these these statements that we hear so often, we see them on bumper stickers. If, I mean, if you're driving in Los Angeles, blessed are the peacemakers would make a great bumper sticker because of LA traffic. <laughs> uh, and so those are those kind of statements, the, the Beatitudes, the blessed are the X group people statements. Okay, cool. Well, how about I just read them so people know what we're talking about. Um, I'll start with Luke, and then I will add the additional ones from Matthew. Oh, you really like Luke, don't you? I'm guessing there's a connection there. I don't know what it is. I do. I really do love Luke. As a matter of fact, my, my son is named after Luke. Um, oh, but yeah. Everyone. One, two, three. Oh. So yeah, um, I'll, I'll read Luke's and then I'll um, talk about what Matthew adds in, how, how they're a little bit different. Uh, but that'll give us a, a clue for what these Beatitudes are. And then we'll talk about how they reveal what God is like. So uh, here's, how they, here's how it reads in Luke. Um, Luke chapter 6, Jesus begins, Blessed are you who are poor. At this point, Matthew adds, Matthew says poor in spirit. Luke just says poor. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you will be filled. Of course, Matthew says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness or justice. Luke just says, blessed are those who are hungry. Anyway, uh, Luke says, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, defame you on account of the Son of Man. Uh, And then Matthew adds in a couple additional ones. Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, Matthew adds, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. So what is going on here? Because these are not the kinds of things that we typically think about when we think of somebody who's blessed or happy, even though happy is a legitimate translation of, uh, I'm going to pronounce this correctly, makairos, uh, which we translate blessed. We typically don't think of things like um, the poor and the hungry and the, those who weep as being blessed or happy. So, so what's going on in in these statements? So, yeah, on, on a big picture level, Jesus, I think, is describing the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. He's saying, quote, this is what the kingdom of God is, is sort of like. And these are the things or rather the kinds of people who are going to be blessed there. Uh, and the, a key emphasis that we know is uh, in Luke is uh, now. The, the impar- uh, is the, uh, the introduction now. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. So it's not just some abstract eschatological thing that we punt into the eschaton. It's something that has a present kind of imperative to it. Uh, it's something that is present and uh, actual now. And what theologians often refer to in this sort of setting, the idea of uh, the king of God is like this and these are the kinds of people that are going to be blessed in there, they refer to this as kind of the reversal and reward. Reversal and reward. Reversal and reward. Okay, un- unpack that a little bit. Uh, Jesus is saying that when the kingdom fully comes, there will be a reversal for the oppressed as well as a reward for those who pursue, pursue kingdom values now, as I mentioned, now, in this present time. Uh, and this is why I don't really like when people call them the be happy attitudes as if they're just some sort of formula for earthly happiness. Uh, poverty and hunger and oppression and all these sorts of things are the recipe for earthly happiness, but Jesus calls the people experiencing those blessed because they have the promise of God's reversal when the kingdom comes. So in a nutshell, you have, um, uh, it's aspectival, right? So when someone is experiencing something... That's like a $2 word. I know, I'm, I'm getting rich right now. The, <laughs> the idea is that 
Um, we need a patron just for your just for your vocabulary. Yeah, there we go. That'll work. Uh, <laughs> but the idea being that I'm sorry, no, no, that's fine. The idea is, I think that from the perspective of those who are outside or even probably inside, uh, looking at someone who's poor, you don't see them as being blessed. But in the kingdom, when God finally breaks into our world and does what needs to be done, finally and irrevocably, uh, there is a sense in which the people that we think will not be rewarded or respected or included are. And the people that are, you know, excellent pastors or wonderful politicians or whatever, 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 the people that have the obvious in aren't. It doesn't mean they're excluded per se, but... It just shows us that the economy of God is not based on one's earthly status or circumstances. Okay, so reversal and reward. The reversal for those who, who have a hard go of it uh, in this life, especially those you know, the, the hungry, the poor, and reward for those who pursue kingdom values. Now, that's I like the way you said that. Uh, and, and all of this is consistent with what we've already said in some of our earlier episodes this season, uh, where, where Jesus shows us through his ministry that God is a God of restoration, right? Mm-hmm. A God who um, values mercy and peace and justice, um, as we've seen in these Beatitudes, which all of this, of course, means what Jesus is saying is that God then must be a God who is merciful and peaceable and just, um, which that's good news, right? That's good yeah. news about what God is like. A merciful, peaceable, and just God. That's that's good news. Well, not only good news, uh, not only these things, but the fact that God sees those who are in mm. oppression and in pain and all these sorts of things. Mm. God sees that, and and in the Old Testament sense, God is taking note of that. Yes, um, yes. Just and I don't like the language of remember, but the idea being that God will one day recall. Um, what people went through and how they went through it, I think is a big issue, how they went through that sort of thing. And God will, well, for lack of a better word, not to sound too Catholic, but will reward or um, repay or or we might say... Um, restore. Yeah, restore what has happened. Um, I don't know if you want have more thoughts on that, but I think just the idea of that God sees and takes note of what happens to people, but also expects those people to engage in a way that is healthy through their circumstances. It's not yes. just God just abandons them to it and goes, well, you know, sink or swim, you know, kind of thing. But yeah. God expects you to, as a good synergist, I want you to be engaged with me in repairing what has happened to you in the most yeah. just and peaceful and Christ-centered way. Yeah. It, it, that's where those two aspects come in, right? Reversal mm-hmm. for those who are oppressed, as well as reward for those who pursue kingdom values. Because um, not everybody is, is oppressed, but anybody can pursue kingdom values. And so there's going to be a reward even for the, you know, the rich who pursue justice and peace and mercy and all of that um, if they follow in the kingdom way. So everybody, there, there's something for everybody um, in the kingdom. But but the, the bottom line here is that um, what Jesus tells us through these, by, by previewing the kingdom, so to speak, is he shows us, he gives us a glimpse into God's fundamental little fundamental character mm-hmm. um, that God is a God of mercy and peace and justice, um, which, you know, when we think about what God is like, we're talking about the fundamental character and attributes of God, a God who is fundamentally concerned about these kinds of things, mercy and peace and justice. Um, and I think that that it, it, on the whole is remarkably comforting, especially for people who are, um, sort of on the on the downside of life 
mm. on this side. Yeah, and, and I think there's something to be said too. It's not mere abstract attributes because you people will hear language right. of God's attributes, his power, his omniscience, his this, his, his all these sorts of things that describe who God is. Um, and my thought is yes to all that, sure, but a God, but a God of inferior character having those things is terrifying. A God of moral perfection that is also, as we said, uh, omniscient and powerful and has these great attributes in the classical faith, you know, classical aspect of Christianity. To have just these raw attributes or raw power without the character revealed in the Sermon on the Mount, the blessed statements, mm. means that we're not dealing with a God of mere power, but a God of perfect power, right? of just power, of kindness. And right. if, we, if we just focus, as we, as I, I must mention, there are a lot of my Reformed friends focus on the sovereignty of God as a, as a characteristic that defines who God is. And right. The response right. is, sovereignty is necessary if you're God, but sovereignty without loving character is just a recipe for totalitarianism. Right, right. And it's, at that point, it's just a God not worth worshiping because any God in the ancient world was sovereign, but not every right. God in the ancient world was holy and perfect and kind and loving, as, as you pointed out already. Yeah. So I think when it, people hear attributes, they automatically think of those things. I'm like, yes, those are true, but not without these very real tangible things we see displayed in the life and ministry of Jesus. Exactly. And, and those things used for this very, uh, I, I mean, I think we often forget how upside down these beatitudes really are, right? Hmm. When Jesus says, happy are those who are poor, everybody goes, huh? Poor. Like they, they. We don't think that now, right? They didn't think that back then. It's because Jesus is saying this is what God is like for those, you know, his power and all of these things are going to be used on behalf of um, the oppressed and those who pursue these these virtues of mercy and peace and justice. And it is to say, too, just to wrap this kind of tangent that you are going off, and I'm sorry about that, but it's this idea that God is not um, excluded from the mansion or the White House, or the Country Club, or whatever. But it is to say, also, that God is not excluded from the rat-infested, the border, the cage, and so on and so forth. It is to say, God is everywhere present, and just because you feel blessed right now materially doesn't mean that God isn't elsewhere working actively to liberate, and all of that sort of stuff, with your help, or sometimes we might say, in spite of us. Mm. Good. And so, Good word. Let's let's jump forward a few verses in the Sermon on the Plain to something else that Jesus says. This is Luke uh, chapter 6, verses 27 through 35. Uh, hear now the word of the Lord. <clears throat> <laughs> but thanks be to God. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but I say to you that listen, ooh, I say to you that hear or listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone who, if any, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them done to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Okay, so why would Jesus tell his listeners to love their enemies, to bless those who curse them, to pray for those who abuse them? What 
What does any of this have to do with Jesus revealing what God is like? Well, I think Jesus actually answers that in his very next sentence. And he says, quote, your reward will be great and you'll be children of the most high. So thinking in terms of status, you will be included as God's son or daughter. For he, that is God, is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So, and there's no therefore, but be merciful just as your father is merciful. So Jesus says that God is kind and merciful, not just to those who deserve it, but to the ungrateful and the wicked. I mean, that can be a little hard to grasp, right? That that mm-hmm. kind of messes with our sense of justice a little bit, doesn't it? I, I mean, it, isn't that really just the thing? <laughs> we want mercy for ourselves, but quote unquote justice for others. Don't we? we? We want to be given mercy. We have extended mercy, but we want others to, to, to pay for their sins. Um, but, but I think if we're honest, most of us realize that, I'll speak for myself, I realize that I have at least to some degree and on some occasions been ungrateful and wicked. Um, <laughs> but the good believe. news, the good news is that means that God is kind and merciful to me as well. And it's one of those where we often forget that it's very easy to hate people that our group hates. It's very easy to get riled up and to dehumanize. And I think that's just the natural human tendency. But I think if we stop and breathe and recognize that this person, however wicked or ungrateful or what have you, that that person still in some sense, in a way that makes it difficult for us to see, but makes it more difficult for us to not see, is that God made that person in God's image. And if that's the case, then that's glorious needs indeed, because that means when we were still wicked and sinful, God, we might say, took pity on us, or even more so, stepped in to be like us, to help us. Mm. We need to make sure, of course, to stay clear that when Jesus tells us to love our enemies and all that, he does not mean that people need to remain in abusive situations or relationships. There's a difference between loving your enemy and being non-retaliatory, um, and being passive. Mm. And, I, and I hate the word Christian pacifist. As someone who is in that sphere, I hate the word pacifist because there's nothing more active than resisting violence and resisting evil. But it is something to be said to allow yourself to be dehumanized to the extent where Jesus essentially, I mean, it's one thing to put yourself on the cross. It's another thing to be forced to, onto the cross yourself. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, and sometimes Jesus' words here get misinterpreted and misapplied and used in ways that manipulate people, I think, into staying in dangerous and abusive situations. We see this, not to get too personal, but we see this in the Southern Baptist Convention with a mm. certain uh, president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary mm. who encouraged a battered wife to go back to her abusive husband. And there may have been a good outcome of that and that the husband repented and changed his life. But that is not the case in every single instance, nor do the ends justify the means. Right. And the ends right. justify the means is not a Christian virtue. I'm right. sorry. If that was the case, then all of us are going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and I think the greatest act of love for everyone involved in these situations is to get out and to get help. And that's not just to get out and get help for yourself. Ultimately, the goal is restoration and reconciliation. It doesn't always happen. But getting out is also for your own safety, but also hopefully that the person who is abusive or awful would get help themselves. But that's right. That's right. It, it, that's it helps goal. call people to accountability. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that, that's, that's a really important reminder. And thanks for saying that so clearly. Um, yeah. The, this, this love your enemy stuff, that, that doesn't mean that you need to, to stay in abuse. It, 
there's there's a lot of bad theology out there around that. So when we talk about that, you know, we talk about, like you said, um, pacifism is not passivism. It's not passivity. Um, it's it's peacemaking and it's enemy love, but that doesn't mean that we keep ourselves in dangerous situations. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Or, or even worse, we allow others who are not as privileged or as strong as we are to bear the brunt of our, passive, our, our yeah. pacifism. And that's where I think a lot of pacifists get it wrong is... They're willing right. for themselves to not be it, but they're willing for others to kind of jump into it. And I go, no, that kind of defeats the whole purpose. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. Uh, so we're talking about what Jesus says about God in these famous sermons of his. Um, and there's something that Jesus mentions several times. And I think we've become so familiar with it um, that we've forgotten how radically significant it really is. All right, and what's that? The idea of God as a loving parent. How much? Oh, a loving parent? Like, wait, what'd you say? <laughs> no, not parrot. Parent. P-A-R-E-N-T. Oh, the colorful talking bird in Japan. Okay, all right. Parent. How many of those uh, 2% AB, ABV sours have you had? Like, as, as in the parent of a child. Oh man, you need to you need to switch to water or something. These, <laughs> these these sours are getting to your head. All right, that All makes right. a little bit more sense. All right, say more about that. Okay, so obviously the idea of a divine parent, a divine squawk, mother. Squawk, squawk. Sorry. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> parent, a divine mother or father. All right, I'm sorry. Remember. Is this par- is this parent named Patreon too? Like, are we is, are we going okay. full circle finally? Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Right. I'm, I'm taking note of this. Right. I know. I know. Love doesn't keep a record of of wrongs, but well, your last name isn't Love, so I think that's okay. Oh man, another pastor joke. Very good. Jokes for days. Jokes All for right. days. All right. I'm sorry. Please continue. Anyway, okay. Uh, so, so this idea of a divine parent it didn't originate with Jesus. Obviously, uh, lots of ancient religions had divine mothers and divine fathers. They viewed their gods as as somehow being a father or a mother to them. Um, and, and even the Old Testament has references to God as father. But Jesus comes along and takes it to just a whole new level altogether. Uh, he refers to God as father far more frequently than anyone else before him, way more frequently than, than any place in the New Testament or any new, or I'm sorry, Old Testament, any Old Testament writer. Hmm. Right. But isn't that because he's the actual son of God? Like, Lots of those are references to him calling God his own father, right? So kind of, you know, Christology and stuff like that. Yes, yes, that, that's very true. But there's more to it than that. Um, Jesus doesn't just refer to God as his own father. Hmm. But Jesus frequently tells his listeners that God is their father as well. Hmm. Uh, you just read one example in Luke chapter 6, 36. He says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. He tells this to his hearers. Hmm. Uh, then it, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus tells his disciples to pray, he tells them to address God as our father in heaven. Hmm. Uh, and then a few verses later, he tells his listeners not to worry about their needs because he says, your heavenly father knows that you need all of these things. Um, and just a little bit later on in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, he says this. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And everyone who knocks, uh, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? 
or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In other words, my whole point here is that when we look at Jesus' teaching, the predominant metaphor that he uses to describe God's relationship with humanity is that of a parent-child relationship. God is the loving parent who cares and provides and watches over God's children. Mm. Uh, That's not to say there aren't other metaphors that describe the relationship, but for Jesus, the parental one seems to be primary. And it's one that he uses for himself and others. And so it's not just a, a Jesus and God thing. It's, it's one he applies just across the board. And, and when that's understood in the right way, it's a really beautiful life-giving picture. And it's a more loving picture than a cosmic arbitrary judge or a master servant or even a king subject relationship, all of which are present to some degree in the New Testament. There are elements of these things. Um, but we do need to still remember that the parent-child metaphor can be painful and of course problematic for people who were abused or neglected by their parents and it, it can conjure up you know some pretty horrific feelings uh, even if that's of course not what's intended in, in scripture no that and that's exactly right um, that's an excellent point um, people who've had bad relationships with their parents the idea of God as a father can can be terrifying if they had a terrifying father at home mm-hmm. um, I, I will say however that, that I that I've known people for whom God became the compassionate loving parent they never had. Um, And and I think it's important to emphasize that when Jesus speaks of God as a a heavenly parent, as a heavenly father, it's always, he's always speaking as the very best possible version of what parents could be and should be. Um, And and so for some people, God really does become the replacement parent, the the parent they they never did have, the the parent that they should have had. God's able to fill that because God is the, the, the perfect parent. And I think this is significant because I think that most people have a pretty good idea of what a good parent looks like, what a good parent is. Just like most people can identify bad parenting when they see it, most people, even non-Christians, uh, you know, can identify good parenting. And, and I think that's that that's a significant aspect to why Jesus describes God as a parent, because it's something that everybody can can understand. They can, they can have they they can glimpse it. They can picture it. They can envision uh, um, a good parent when they when they hear about it. Hmm. And I've noticed you keep referring to God as a parent instead of a father. Is there a reason for that, you Unitarian jerk? Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, G- now to, to be clear, absolutely clear, Jesus does use the masculine word for father, um, as do, you know the the New Testament um, when it when it uses that word, it, it does use the, the masculine word for father. Um, and that makes complete sense in the, the patriarchal culture of the ancient world, where the you know the father was the, the head of the the house and the family and all that the the pater familias. Um, but we know that God is spirit, um, and therefore we know that God doesn't actually have a gender. At the risk of sounding crude, God doesn't have male reproductive organs. Um, God is genderless. Uh, and additionally, there are several points in Scripture where, although God is never actually called mother, God is described in mothering ways. And, and perhaps the most notable are the ways in which 
God is described as, as a mother bird who gives shelter and protection to the young ones uh, under the wing. I mean, if you want a good example of biblical womanhood, I say following the example of jail and taking patriarchy and putting a tent peg through it means, you know, we got a little more interesting stuff going on with biblical man <laughs> womanhood. But in fact, Jesus actually picks up on the motif you mentioned about mother birds giving shelter uh, in his uh, lament over Jerusalem. And, and I think it's Luke thirteen thirty four, where he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? but you were not willing. Right, so there's Jesus speaking prophetically for God, right, saying her, gather her children under her wings. Like, you know, this is what, this is what uh, Jesus speaking for God says. And so besides all that, contrary to what all of the biblical manhood and womanhood people would, would have us believe, there aren't really a whole lot of differences between what makes a good mother and what makes a good father. Um, parenthood is parenthood and the same qualities that make a good father, a good father, make a good mother, a good mother and vice versa. You know, it's not like the moms are the compassionate ones and the dads are the, the, you know, the rule enforcers you know, dads need to be compassionate and moms need to enforce rules. And, and so, you know, I think it's, um, while I don't think it's wrong to refer to God as father, obviously, I just think that parent better captures the, the full breadth of the truth of who God is just, just a little bit better. Yeah. And if you bring in the cultural aspect, referring to God as father is a big part of that is the language of inheritance. Uh, only a father, father could confer inheritance rights, for example. So when we talk about God being father in, in the Pauline letters, for example, we see a lot of stuff about inheritance rights and yes. sons. And so we can see what's being, it's not about father in terms of gender, it's father in terms of status or cultural rights. Yes. Um, and so yes. it's one of those, I have no problem referring to God as father because I, I try to pray the way Jesus prayed. But right. when I think of father, I don't think of, I don't think of a genderedness. I think of what characterizes a father in some sense, but yes. not in terms of the father is only this and ruling and power and authority because my mom has just as much rule authority and power as my dad. Yeah. Uh, right. It's just meant to conjure up. Here's, here's what this is like, not here what it is. Right. And I think a it, lot of people get hung up on that, and, and rightly so, because, I mean, let's face it, gendered language for God the Father or for Jesus is often used to be patriarchal and stuff like that. Yes. And that's something you and I are very keen to avoid. So that's yes. why, for example, I say brothers and sisters instead of brothers, because that's how the language was intended all along, I think, to communicate and all right. that sort of stuff. So just to and, be clear. And what's interesting with, with all of this is that when Jesus talks about God as Father, it's usually not in the context of usually not in the context of like power or discipline or punishment, right? The, the text we just read from the, the Sermon on the Mountain, Sermon on the Plain, it's in the context of care and compassion and provision, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, of loving and trustworthiness. Um, so, so God's not, you know, Jesus isn't portraying God as like this, aloof, vindictive, you know, uh, authoritarian father figure, but, but, but a loving parent who stoops down and tends to the needs of the children, um, who, who, who sees needs and provides and cares and watches over, um, in a, in a very loving way, uh, you know, very different often than some of the pictures of, of the authoritarian father that we get from some of these, um, other sources. Uh, but, but the point I, I want to make with all of this is that out of all of the 
the relational metaphors that are used in Scripture to, to describe God's relationship. Uh, you know, creator, creation, king, subject, um, master, servant. Jesus really, he zeroes in on and, and amplifies this idea of God as a perfect, loving, compassionate parent. Uh, and, and I think that means something. If Jesus really is the clearest revelation of, of self-revelation of God, the fact that Jesus prioritizes God as a loving parent over all these other metaphors, I think that's significant. Amen to that. Whew, all right. Gee, I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> Why don't we review? All right, let's review. All right. Ugh. Sorry, I'm fighting a sneeze. I'm fighting a sneeze. God bless you. Think about caps. Yeah, thank you. All right, there we go. <clears throat> so let's Did it work? Yeah, there we go. That actually kind of worked. <laughs> now I'm thinking about sours, and I might need to get something to drink after this. All right, uh, working from the premise that we, we established in, in, in earlier episodes, that Jesus is the clearest, most complete self-revelation of God, uh, that Jesus basically is the perfect imprint of who God is, both in terms of person, in terms of activity and character, in this episode, again, looking at what Jesus actually said about God in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Sermon on the Plain, which are both probably summaries of Jesus' kind of things that Jesus taught on a regular basis. Um, it's just, yeah, so that's it's just as a review. Yeah. Uh, so in this episode, we started looking at the Beatitudes, which we will no longer call the Be Happy Attitudes ever again. Thank you. <laughs> and we saw how the Beatitudes reveal a God of restoration reversal and reward as well as a god who values mercy and peace and justice and we also saw how jesus based his commands for his followers that's us to love their enemies on god's own character and practice jesus based this on who god is and who jesus is and what we're to we're to do on because of that because god is kind and merciful even to the unjust and wicked therefore we are to be likewise and finally, we saw that Jesus's primary way of describing God's relationship to humanity was with parental language. God is a loving, compassionate, trustworthy parent who cares and provides for God's children. Amen. And in the next installment of this series, whenever we have a chance to get to it, because we are <laughs> pastors and busy, uh, I think we're going to take a look at some of Jesus's parables and see how they contribute to the picture of God revealed through Jesus' teaching. So expect lots of stuff on what? people and lanterns and sheep and goats and stuff like that yeah yeah all the all the parables farms and wine presses and lots of stuff and searching for coins and stuff oh, that right. yeah coins and sheep and you know a riotous living that's a good one yeah that, that's one of my favorite ones actually yeah uh, we'll have to unpack that one yeah uh, so anyway yes uh thank you for listening if you found this content helpful uh one of the best things you can do is share it with other people on facebook and twitter and anywhere else that you can uh, we're on iTunes and we're on our website and we're on Spotify and wherever uh, podcasts are found. Share it with other people. That's one of the best things that you can do to help us get this out. If you think that what we're providing is good and helpful and necessary for the Christian life. And if you'd like to partner with us further and support this work financially, become a Patreon at, I think, what is it? www.patreon.com slash synergistpod. Uh, you can help us out there just financially. Even two bucks a month or five bucks a month goes a really long way. We're you and I didn't think we'd have any people no. helping us out. Uh, it's like, you know, hey, liturgists, we're coming. You with your <laughs> we, we, we got a little ways to go. But, we got a little um, ways to go. 
but uh, we are we are incredibly grateful for those of you who um, so generously support us uh, financially every month and, and help sort of underwrite the cost of production and materials and, and all that stuff. We're just uh, we're Thomas eternally grateful. drinking habit. Yes, that's incredible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, this has been another episode of the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.